1: This this, show is brought to you by Safety FM.
0: Warning the following broadcast contains adult language, adult content, frank safety discussions, and stories that might sound unbelievable. But believe me, every one of those stories is true. We didn't start the safety war, but we are going to fight to win it. For our families, for our communities for our workplaces, and for our lives. Today we speak with Imogen Salva, author of One Star Away. It's the story of her family's struggle in World War II. Her family's story is parallel to my family's story. The struggle of Polish exiles during World War II in the Soviet Union, today on Safety Wars. How is this all related to safety, you might ask? Part of safety is resilience, faith, hope, and optimism, even in life's most difficult and unimaginable circumstances. The truth is, I really don't have the words to describe how I feel about the Nowicki family and their story, but I will borrow a few lines from one of my favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. If you're familiar with the movie, you'll recognize his speech by Samwise Gamgee in The Two Towers. The scene starts out like this. Frodo says, I cannot do this, Sam. Samwise Gamgee answers, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo answers, What are we holding on to, Sam? that there is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. For the Polish refugees that were expatriated against their will, it was a hope to be reunited with their family in a free Poland. Estimates run all over the board, between 600,000 to 1 million dead in the Soviet Union alone, including 12 of my family members, it's estimated that only 50,000 out of 2 million Poles eventually returned from this exile. These are official numbers from communist occupied Poland and the former Soviet Union. So the truth is that we really don't know the numbers. But we do know those people's stories, thanks to people like Imogen Salva. Today on Safety Wars, it is my honor to have a conversation with Imogene Salva, author of One Star Away. All right, so today, uh, like I said in my introduction, we're talking to Imogene Salva, the author of One Star Away. I came across this book, and uh, because my normal interactions and everything else, uh, my mother is a subscriber to Skota uh, newspaper, which is the... Polish uh, the Polish newspaper put out by Polish National Alliance, which is a life insurance group out of Chicago, and she said, "Boy, this woman's story sounds a lot like mine." So she says to me, "Jimmy, please order this on Amazon for me, one star away." And before you know it, we get the two copies of the book and an electronic copy of the book on Kindle. And you know, it's one of those books. Like my introduction said, you have no idea what to do with this because it's sad, it's happy, you know. You want it to end because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things are very painful. I'm I'll be honest; it's very painful to read you now because I have a personal connection with my family with these stories and uh, just you know horrible, horrible sto- stories. But then you can't let it end because you want to find out. How you know, how it ends, and it's a happy ending at the end, at the end of the book. It's a very happy ending, a very motivational, very uplifting. And is that what I'm, you basically hear about your book? What, do you, what are the normal comments that you hear?
1: Oh, well, thank you, first of all, for having me. And, yeah, I, I'm always uh, happy when somebody tells me that there's a happy ending at the end of the book. And that is true. Yeah, a lot of uh, ups and downs throughout, but uh, my mother, thank heavens, she eventually came here to the United States, so there is a happy ending. Right. So both of our my
0: my mother and your mother and your grandmother, right, and the extended families. Uh, you no know, for the listeners, this is a very brief history. The Soviet Union were allies with uh, Nazi Germany at the beginning of World War II, and both countries attacked Poland in 1939, was it, in Yes. Yes. 1939, the end of 1939, and the Russians from the east, Germans from the west, and uh, both uh, sides have their own stories on um, the Soviet Union side. Uh, They expatriated roughly about 2 million. There are estimates all over the place, but anywhere from 500,000 to 2 million people I tend to lean towards the 2 million, and they put them in camps, concentration camps in Siberia. That's where uh, your family went. My family went up to, I cannot say it in in Polish, Archangel Russia, which is the northern port city on the Arctic Circle and they eventually ended up in the custody of uh, the British during World War II and made their way through Iran, made their way eventually to India and Pakistan, what's today Pakistan, and eventually made their way back to the United States and that's in a nutshell the whole history of the entire book was on your family's story over there. It was eight people, correct? Started out with eight people. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't end with eight people. Uh, On my side of the family, it started with 12 people and they ended up with three people. So, uh, coming out of the camps. So, uh, it was just a very horrible story. So, Imogen, what really inspired you to write this story?
1: Uh, I was inspired by the true stories my mother told me of her childhood. The fact that she and her family lived through such an unimaginable nightmare during World War II has never ceased to amaze me. The courage, uh, resilience, and sacrifices they endured are worthy of the story. Unfortunately, as you just mentioned, though, their story was quite common amongst us Poles. Historians estimate, like you said, the number of Poles who were sent to Siberia during World War II to be around 1.7 million. And I was astonished by by throughout my whole life to learn that this piece of history, which is so personal to you and me, is shared by thousands, you know, like your own family, but so foreign to this day to the multitudes and remains relatively unknown to the rest of the world. Uh, Unfortunately, the Jewish Holocaust was a fraction. Of the millions upon millions massacred by Stalin, the some estimates
0: uh, go any go in upwards of anywhere from 50 to 100 million. I've heard some estimates 150 million. I don't I don't know, but now everybody every, has their story here. The Polish people have their story. Uh, unfortunately, what happened was since we were allies with the Soviet Union during World War II a lot of the, well, no, towards the end of the World War II, uh, a lot of these stories were, uh, I don't want to say suppressed, uh, but they weren't talked about with this because, you know, we were in with the uh, Soviet Union uh, there, and we were allies, and we had financed a lot of the Soviet Union as far as the uh, war machine over there. So uh, this is what happens, right? The, this is essentially what happens. Uh so the book starts out with a very controversial figure, the Shah of Iran. And as we say here on Safety FM, there's an inside Iggy on that one. There's an inside story on the Shah of Iran. What exactly uh, is that story? How do you start out the story? You know, it's a very controversial figure, at least in the West. But as my father often says, nothing's totally good, nothing's totally evil. So, what, what, what's some of the story on him?
1: Well, I have a f- few thoughts on the Shah. Um, I don't want to give the story away, but after the right. Shah died in 1980, my mother had related to me that she had been on duty at New York Hospital while he was a cancer patient, and she had been so happy to treat him as a small thank you. Sadly, at the age of 15 in 1979, I didn't fully really understand the, the importance Shah Reza Mohammed Baghlavi had for my mom. In 1942, there were about 120,000 Poles, you know, barely hanging on to life, uh, who started, they started a mass exodus from many remote parts of the USSR to freedom in Iran. And Iran at that time, at the beginning of the war, had been gravely. Seriously affected by political instability and famine, following a joint invasion of the country by the Soviet Union and Great Britain, British and Soviet troops from then on occupied Iran, and the first Pahlavi Shah, who they regarded with suspicion, was forced to abdicate in favor of his son Mohammad Reza. This Shah was my mother's patient in 1979. So it's important to note that the Soviets and the Brits confiscated and sent to. Send all of Iran's resources to the front line in Europe. Despite famine, hardships in Iran at the time, the Iranians greeted the Poles escaping communism with much generosity. And in Tehran uh, or Tehran alone, the refugees were accommodated in several camps, uh, I think around four camps, one of which was the private gardens of the young shop, which was later transformed into a temporary refugee camp and a hospital. But, right. uh, the Shabi came throughout his reign, a close Cold War ally of the U.S. in the Middle East. And it's known, it's sure known that the Shah in his reign used brutal force to suppress communists and Islamic opposition to his Western reforms.
0: Um,
1: history maybe is vilified. They passed judgment on him, on the Shah of Iran. However, my opinion is that, you know, when your country borders the USSR, it's threatened by communists and you don't follow 100% of all the dictates of the CIA, who wasn't Power indefinitely following the 1953 CIA-led coup, you're not going to be liked by everyone. But my thoughts on him regarding my mother's story is that they had one thing in common, and that is that both felt betrayed by their American and British allies, both allies, and this was a feeling that united them.
0: Well, here's uh, something else. Uh, right. You solved the mystery for us with this because my mother always had a picture of the Shah of Iran and with her things that she was able to keep uh, over, you know, through her journey. And now we understand why she always had a picture of him, because this was a very, you uh, know, uh, the Polish people really liked him because of this. He saved them uh, from starvation there. Yes, and that's did. a whole other story for another podcast, that whole thing. Uh, with that it's no not relevant to the book, and we want to talk about the book. And uh, if a word for him, neither one of us will be here. We can uh, we can honestly say that I Very true. Uh, because well this in, in short, uh, my understanding of the history is is that uh, the Soviet Union need, needed men to fight uh, the Germans. And the Allies needed that. They decided to create a Polish army out of the refugees, out of the expatriates, in, uh, in, uh, from Poland. And what ended up happening was uh, uh, the Allies only wanted the men. What ended up happening was they took everybody. So General Anders took everybody. And now you have 120,000 people plus sitting over at, in the Caspian Sea. Now what are you going to do? Now you have a refugee issue. That's when they were taken over into uh, Tehran at that point. Tehran. So uh, that's uh, basically what happened. Now, part of the reason why we're having this interview is not only to relive history as a historical thing, but a lot of people are having problems today, remaining optimistic. All people have always had it with the COVID situation and uh, there are serious mental health issues in this country for various reasons and one of the things that I uh, like about this book is people are optimistic people made it through horrible situations and it's to give uh, it's to give people some hope with their own situation that's all part of safety, right? Optimism. How did the families deported to Siberia keep so optimistic because there's a, a theme of optimism throughout the whole book. Yeah, there's some despair, but there's some optimism. How are they able to keep so optimistic on their situation and have hope?
1: Well, I, I don't think they were optimistic all the time. I think the, right. a better word might be faith. As, oh. as Catholics, they relied on their faith to carry them through the rough times, for sure. Knowing God was with them every step of their exile, from their arrest in Poland to the harsh Siberian conditions, starvation, illnesses, separation, etc. Faith was their pillar, and it has pulled devotion to their Catholic faith, which has to a large extent molded our unbreakable spirit and has resurrected Poland from the ashes in her thousand-year history. And it was also true for my mom and her family. You know, When all around them was nothing but despair and darkness, their eyes saw light. And we know that only faith makes that possible, and faith in Christ makes it achievable.
0: Absolutely. So, how? Uh,
1: what kind of lessons,
0: uh, No, I think you answered this question, but how, how do you apply the lessons from this story, from this history? Uh,
1: the lessons learned in my mother's life, I believe, can be applied to anyone's life. Uh, we all face challenges, as you said. Uh, we all face adversities. So, do we respond in times of need with anger, bitterness, uh, resentment, or do we respond with love and forgiveness? For the Novitskis, we act and respond with great love. And love, contrary to what our modern society tells us, is not an emotion. Love is a decision to will the good of the other, no matter what. It is a responsible choice, which takes courage and grace, especially when we're hurt or harmed by others. It's hard to love and forgive. The, the bigger and more serious the offense, the harder it becomes. And, and you and I know we can't do that on our own, but with God... Right. All things are possible, you know, it's, we choose not to have any ill will toward our perpetrators. And it's not about forgetting the offense committed. God gave us a memory. Not always does forgiveness mean reconciliation. And my mother wasn't reconciled with her land or the Russians after the war. Right. Forgiveness is about letting go and not wishing any misfortune on our offenders.
0: And, And basically
1: the lesson is, he who forgives prepares himself for peace and abundant graces. It's a choice that makes us appreciate the magnitude of God's mercy toward us.
0: Nothing. I don't think I could add anything to that. All right. You have to forgive, and uh, otherwise it destroys you. You know, you're the one that impacts. Remember, the perpetrators, it doesn't even uh, think of, it doesn't even impact them. You, the more that you hate and not forgive, the more power you give them also over you next one i can tell you how it was uh growing up you know with my uh grandmother and my mother So exactly. you probably have a similar experience i know you spoke with my mother about this since our parents went through such hard times anything that came up was not a big deal for us right so if i was having some kind of problem at school or anything well so what i had it worse my mother was like the only person i know we saw the uh, movie on nuclear war or the day <laughs> after. And so I've been through worse. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How do you think it impacted your childhood?
1: Well, um, my mom, she taught us to value everything. Nothing, nothing went to waste. Everything right. from never wasting a crumb to being so grateful for running water, a bathtub, a roof over our heads, heat. Freedom to go to school, and, and especially to worship God in everything. We were taught to have an attitude, a gratitude, and never to complain. And she always encouraged us to be self-reliant, very flexible, well-educated, which for my mom and now my sister and myself, and for us, the uh, offspring, it means knowing firsthand your history, world history, like my mom, medicine, too, even though I'm not a doctor, and other things which I've discovered in my lifetime as well as in my mom's life, is contrary, very much contrary to the narrative of many so-called prominent sources, you know, media outlets that we listen to.
0: The scouting story here, uh,
1: I found it very moving.
0: I sent it to my son's Cub Scout leader. And um, as you know, my mother was a scout over there also. So basically, this is the setting. You have a bunch of children in these camps. You have to have something for the children to do. Survival skills, most of those kids, you probably couldn't teach anything about survival skills. But you could teach about camaraderie and all the other things that go into scouting. Uh, My mother has has a picture of herself as a scout in the uniform and everything else uh, out there. So scouting takes up a big part of the story. uh, I found it very moving, the story in here where, uh, uh, you know, did you want to make a comment on that? On how scout, how much scanning? how did you come about well, that with your mother?
1: Thank you so much. I just want to say I'm so glad you liked that chapter. Um, it's probably not everybody's number one chapter. favorite activity, and I was never a scout. But, yes, yeah, certainly uh, I would say that the mostly the children, like you, of the Polish survivors, have shared with me uh, cherished memories great memories, uh, stories of the parents counting adventures, lifelong friendships made. In India, the Polish children uh, who came were recuperating from years of traumatic experiences in Russia, and they yeah. were extremely lucky to have uh, what they call Druhna, it's like the guider, Janina Ptak, who was a very young and beautiful woman. Uh, she was the one who organized the scout movement in the Balachadi camp in uh, near Jamnagat. That's in, in India. Yes, yes. Yes. She undertook the role of scoutmaster with great passion and determination to get as many children involved as she could. Uh, She herself, having lost her own child in the war, I believe, I think when they crossed to Iran, her child died. Uh, She knew firsthand how traumatized these children uh, were and that they needed to develop the skills you mentioned, like uh, courage, self-reliance, resourcefulness, and, and that brotherhood. Um, they were trained in personal hygiene, first aid, prevention of diseases like malaria, especially venomous things. And um, as for that, <laughs> as for the venomous things, scorpions uh, in India, scorpions and snakes were everywhere in the Polish. My, mother has,
0: my mother has a lot of stories on the snakes. They, uh, yeah. You know, with the, uh, with the uh, oh, the cobras. The cobras. They oh. to keep in the. But she says how it is in movies is exactly how it
1: was. Yeah, Uh, yeah. The children actually had a pet. This is funny. In the Balachadi camp, they had a pet mongoose. I don't know. That's not in the book, by the way. But my mother had recounted many times about this pet mongoose. That was an expert snake uh, trapper. And I always thought that was really cute. But the scouting movement in India was uh, certainly different from... It's important to note the Polish scouting organization in Poland, which during the war had gone underground. War time uh, Polish scouting, more than in any other country in Europe, prepared their youth not only to learn camping skills, patriotism, the brotherhood loyalty, but but mostly to be future soldiers of Poland, defending their country against their aggressors, you know, namely uh, the Germans and the Russians.
0: I wanted to share just one paragraph here right, from an uh, excerpt from your book, because uh, this this pretty much sums everything up here, right? I sincerely hope, and this is the Scout uh, Master, right? I sincerely hope that our Scouts and Cub Packs have, to some extent filled those empty places in your soul and replace them with brotherhood. For all Scouts are brothers who run their life together through thick and thin. She concluded in a winning voice. And then it went on, to the same song that we sing with my son at the scouting camp. It's uh, the uh, lyrics to Taps. Right? Yeah. The day is done, gone the sun, from the sea, yeah. from the hills, from the sky, all is well, safety, rest, God is nigh. And it's like uh, all the scouts sing that. So it's like you have a connection from the past into what's contemporary. It's the same song the same uh, thing. And uh, that's what really moved me, where this uh, was uh, much bigger. Scouting is much bigger than your little Cub Scout group in your church or in your synagogue or mosque or in your town. It's a much bigger movement, international uh, movement. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I thought it was really...
1: It's noteworthy that, um, as we were saying, you know, the patriotism is so beautiful it, it's so worthy of praise um, and, and the, that the, these scouts, these young children, especially in Poland, going back there, you know, they, they used these scouts during they became members of the Polish Home Army, the Polish resistance. Right. And, and these songs, my mother would sing them till her last day. and In fact, I have a whole video in India when she's revisiting after 72 years. You know, those right. songs, even though my mother had some dementia, she always, Every single line, you know, was memorized. Um, but these, I always remember because it, it really uh, it shocked me when I was walking the streets of Warsaw the first time. You know, as a young child, I right. never, I was always in the southern part. But when I went to the capital and I saw the bullets in every building, and I was like, "Why?" Yeah. Times early in the seventies, and I was like, yeah. "Why are these bullets like? What? What is this?" You know. And my father would explain, like. Oh, this is where, you know, 100 scouts were killed. This is where 200 scouts were And I'm like, what? You know, hundreds, which I didn't know of young scouts, are taken towards the uprising and died right. heroes. And some were captured and died in concentration camps. And and the most amazing stories of bravery are those of the Polish scouts. And you know, my mother, for that reason, she loved Drukna Janina Ptak. And she often, she reminisced how the scouts would acquaint themselves with their exotic. Indian terrain the orientation hikes trail hikes right. uh, when they be blindfolded they'd be singing uh, during these campfires under the skylit uh, sky the um lit sky and the uh, you know mysterious Indian moon they spend many a long night under the sky singing these songs full of longing for their lost homeland and and also it's important to note that the Maharaja, their benefactor right. Jam ahead he personally starts with it, that these children would remain Poles, learn about their culture, language, scouting everything in Polish, and he actually built them a school and and he wanted them to be equipped so that one day they yeah. could return to a free Poland
0: yeah, so you no, know, let me say this history you know, has his, uh, has is abundant with people making the right decisions at the right time when wrong decisions were a lot easier right so for example, in the uh, Jewish Holocaust, you have O Schindler, right. You say the German Jews, and many others, right? You mentioned the Maharaja. So in this saga, for lack of a better word, I don't have the right words to describe this. No, that's my, me. I just don't have it, right? The Maharaja, and you'll share his full name because I can't pronounce it, was one of those people here. So why don't you talk about them? Can you talk about the Maharaja very uh, uh, briefly? So basically... They were in Tehran, and they moved to India. Uh, Balivada, was it? Or, I forget
1: the Um, name. So, from uh, Iran, yes, they came in these army lorries, uh, like army trucks, and they went through, well, again, this was British colonial India, so they stopped in Quetta, which is now in Pakistan, but at the time, uh, they had to stop because of the monsoon rains and things like that. They eventually made it to the northwestern corner, um, which actually he's a huge hero, this man that you're talking about, the Maharaja Jam Jamstahed Digviji Sinji. He, at the time, if you want me to talk about him a little bit?
0: Yes, go ahead. Uh, okay. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, he would be probably the biggest hero of this story. And uh, at the time of this story, he was the leader of the Chamber of Princes of India. He ruled mm-hmm. the principality of Nabanagar, uh of which the capital is Jamnagar presently called the state of Gujarat, no longer called the Navanagar, so it's the state of Gujarat, and that's kind of located in the northwest corner of India, bordering Pakistan. And you know, Jim, there are few coincidences in this life, so it happened that this same Jam Sachert, as a young boy and the future heir to the throne of Navanagar, he traveled all over the world with his famous uncle and adopted father, because his own father had died when he was a little boy um so his uncle had been the maharaja of the day and he represented india at the league of nations in this way the future maharaja was introduced to ignacy paderewski who was the president of poland and a world renowned pianist after world war 1 uh, after world war 1 right. when his uncle the maharaja of the day and um and paderewski there was a beautiful friendship which grew and years later by World War II when now the young Maharaja who is now the, um, the leader of Navanagar and again the leader of the Chamber of Princes of India when he hears of the plight of these Polish children in you know dying in Russia he influenced the other princes to sign an agreement to bring Polish orphans and half orphans to India and support them during their stay. And Jim, that is not a, a mere coincidence. That is a providence of God.
0: Right. Well, my favorite thing is that is, uh, the uh, Soviets wanted to take everybody back. And there was talk about all the ex in Poland and our parents' situation to take them back. And you say, "You can't take them back. I'm going to adopt them all." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, how many people would have done that? That's a very. Well, that was a very novel solution or you adopt several thousand uh, children and say, well, now you can't take them back. They're members of my family. Well, the (laughs) communist
1: officials um, when already after the Tehran uh, conference, and I believe it was November of 43, it was established already, you know, that even though in the West we don't hear about it, it was already established that Poland would be partitioned. The Soviet Union would take, you know, 52% of Polish land. And in India, these children, you know, they were so scared of ever returning, obviously, right. to, you know, Russia. I mean, uh, but they didn't know at the time the fate of their own native lands. Um, but these children, funny enough that you mentioned that, they, the picture on the cover of the book, the picture of mm-hmm. my mom. And I'm sure you have a very similar picture because every child that lived in India has a similar picture like that. And it's obviously in black and white. And right. I, I was like, well, when I met Yesuaf Zipua, also another author, uh, and a friend of my mother who went through that same experience, he explained to me that these pictures had been taken by Father Pluta, who was, again, like a father to all these thousands orphans. And he took them because he wanted to save them from being repatriated to communist, you know, Russia or Poland. Right. You know, that The communist officials were there to... Reclaim them, you know, saying that right. they weren't yet 17 and they had the rights of these children and these poor, terrified, traumatized children. Um, in the meantime, the father had the idea that he was going to take a picture to show, okay, this is how they looked when they came. Nothing but skin and bones, you know, hanging skin and right. their bones. Dying, most of them didn't make it. And now look at them, healthy, children, laughing, you know, they recovered uh-huh. from this trauma.
0: I know my mother has a uh, professional photo right out of. Uh, uh, you just answered a question for me. There was a professional photo taken in uh, Tehran, right when they got off the ship, right, and everybody was skin and bones. And then they took several. I said, "Who has time to take these professional photographs?" <laughs> you know, you're right. in a refugee right. camp. They were they looked awfully nice. Uh, yeah. My mother said they were borrowed. Now that it answers that question for me, that they wanted to document how well they were being treated, and they just went and uh, they—I mean, these are wonderful photos uh, that my mother has. I was like, "Who yeah. had time to do this during a war?" But they had it done. That explains that. It's amazing. So,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, now I have a whole list of questions here. I got to backtrack a little bit. Throughout this whole book, there's a rock. No, uh, that is one of the centerpieces of this. What significance does that rock have? Because I tell you what, it was a very... Your grandmother was a very wise woman where she set up <laughs> set this up because not too many people would have thought of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you want to describe the rocks.
1: So, Those, I'll say this much, so not to get too much into the detail that... Maybe a little bit about... Uh, I'll just say that maybe when we're separated from someone we love, often a right. small token provides comfort in the memory of that loved one. Yeah, it is more than mere sentimentality. When we hold the item, caress it, memorize each detail, feelings that are hidden away are suddenly brought to life and for my mother, for Zuta, no tokens from from Poland when they were they were deported, no tokens like that existed. No
0: uh, right. tokens
1: of comfort from their home. Everything that the family owned had been stripped away in the exile to Siberia. So in the story, basically, I'll just say that Tola, my grandmother, plucked a stone off the ground and assigned my mother, Zyuta, a task in helping her family to keep track of the distance they covered each day in their escape from their gulag, their forced labor right. camp. As their escape progresses to Kubishev, where the Polish uh, consulate had been um, as they're progressing there, the stone becomes the last and only tangible connection to her mother. And my mom, Shuta, uh, is determined in the story to preserve that connection, no matter how risky. And in the story, there's a the second stone, too, very prominent, nice. uh, given to her by Rami, one of the Indian drivers, and that had more of a, um, a deep spiritual meaning, more more related to discovery of self. Which would, at the end uh, of her life, come full circle, you know, when my mom returns to her second homeland, India. But sadly, today, both stones are gone, lost in my mother's many, many moves as time went by. But their memory alone gave my mother really uh, great comfort.
0: Like I said, you know, it's like you don't know what to do, you don't know whether to be happy, to be sad. There's a lot, you know, this is up and down, but it always has a happy ending. And with my family, it was a a happy ending here. Everybody, you know, the people that made it through really made a significant contribution to their community, really made a significant contribution to their family, you know, uh, an abundance of love. I can say that, you know, there was an abundance of love throughout this story and uh, with our story here. And it was just, it's a story that has to be told before it's forgotten. Uh, yeah. Like in my introduction, this is a story that has to be told. How has this really affected you with this? Because with me and reading your book, a lot of questions were answered for me personally. That's how it impacted me. We just made that discovery now with the photos. How has this really impacted you? I mean, the process of writing this book.
1: Well, Jim, beyond each and every photograph, I'll start with photographs I've been shown by my mother from her time in India,
0: mm-hmm. there is
1: a complete life story. Uh, as I started interviewing some of the characters and became acquainted with their incredible experiences, I realized that this story needed to be written. Uh, the pages in it and the book, the pages born in this book are the result of much pain, much much suffering my own Uh, but pain we know makes us stronger more virtuous more resilient and it for sure was a hard and emotional task living through each and every experience of each book character all the while trying to manage home life you know responsibilities family my teaching job and I have to thank my editor who was 100% laboring along with me in this endeavor to finish a book which ended finally in October of last year of 2020 the last year, today's the 31st so October 2020 uh, after we published the book and basically in the end, giving those who are no longer with us a voice, I believe is so important because their story will live on
0: Absolutely and uh... I tell you what, this was a phenomenal conversation we've had here with this. Now, just for the listeners, you had, uh, and this is not a unique story, this is a story of the Polish exile. There's many different stories that go along with in other cultures and the struggle against communism and the struggle against dictatorships and people made it through. So whatever we're going through in our life, we can see. We can have some inspiration, I guess, with the stories like this, where you don't know exactly how it's going to end, and uh, it's very, a very good read. It was very important for me, important for my mother, and my mother is not a reader, right? And for her to actually sit down and read this book, you know it had to, it was an important book. It was very accurate, and it answered some of her stories. Now, where is your book available? So it's oh. available. On, I got it on Amazon.com. One star yeah. away, Imogene Salva. So yes, uh, and
1: actually available anywhere now. Any bookstore, you can just give the title. There's an ISBN number. They'll look it up. So any bookstore, but probably easiest, as you said, you know, um, through the internet. You know, Amazon.com. It's available there. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I know you're, you have to go. So uh, I had a prior engagement set up here. You're going to church. So it's New Year's Eve. That's that's all good polls go to uh, church on New Year's Eve.
1: Are you tired of hiring
0: safety consultants and safety professionals that don't have any passion for what they're doing? How about those who have never worked in the field or done the dirty work? Is there resistance to taking safety training because the training is boring, irrelevant, and unengaging? Are your employees playing a team, college student, or someone on the dark web to take the online safety training for them? Look no further. Safety Wars can come to your facility or do most of the training you need through an online platform at times convenient for you. For more information, call me, Jim Polzel, your Safety Wars host at 845 694 4170 or you can email me at gym at safetywords.com. Remember, if you've heard this transmission, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces.